Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode nine, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2012 supernatural horror film, Lords of Salem. It was written and directed by Rob Zombie and stars Sherry Moon Zombie, Bruce Davison, Jeff Daniel Phillips, Ken Forey, Patricia Quinn, Dee Wallace, and Judy Geeson. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and you watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So as you all probably already know, Rob Zombie was slash is, I guess, still a shock rocker as well as a film writer and director. And I think way back in season one or two, when we discussed his first film, House of a Thousand Corpses, we talked a little bit more about his breakthrough into filmmaking. So listen to that episode if you're interested in that. Um, But by the time Lords of Salem was in production, Zombie already had four films under his belt. He had House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and the two Halloween franchise remakes. I almost called them Halloween franchise rejects. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor Zombie. Oh, no. That was the first date I went on. I saw the... The first Halloween remake. The first date ever in your life? Yep. I didn't date until I was 19. <laughs> well, that's fair. I mean, who needs it, honestly? Nobody. Well, that's who. I know. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, What a good first date movie. Well, sure. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had my first kiss that night, too. Oh, my God. That's precious. I know. 19. You know, I was saving myself. <laughs> Gracie, you were basically a spinster. What the even heck? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, after directing the remake of Halloween and its sequel, Rob Zombie stated that he wanted to try something different and original. Also factoring into Zombie's decision was that he was offered complete and creative freedom for the project, something that he did not have for either of his Halloween pictures. Zombie had the idea for the movie before starting on the second Halloween movie. However, as he puts it, quote, it wasn't really like I was working on it. I was like, oh, this would be kind of cool idea, like Salem, radio station, blah, 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 music. And then I forgot I even wrote that down, unquote. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So after Jason Blum came to Zombie asking for something supernatural in nature, Zombie was reminded of the Salem idea. Despite this, Zombie stated that much of the original concept actually changed significantly, noting that once the project got underway, that he basically started writing it from scratch. 
So in the DVD commentary for the film, Zombie said how actress Dee Wallace truly enjoyed playing her character once she reveals her true evil self. Quote, she was always complaining that she hates playing nice moms, unquote. And uh, we're going to talk more about this later. Dee Wallace, she is one of my favorite people in the entire world. Oh, my God. She's the best. Oh, my God. I love her. Oh, okay. Okay, so don't for before I go on, she her character is a self help guru. Yes, and isn't that what she is in real life? She is. That's what I thought when I watched it this time. I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, I think we talk about that in our episode on the howling. Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. I thought I knew I knew this, but I didn't know why I knew this. She's so cute. She's so cute about it. Yes, I'm a Help guru. I'm like, oh, oh my god. Oh, yes, you are, D. You sure are. <laughs> okay, so a few other facts and tidbits from the zombie commentary. Only two to three days of the movie were filmed in Salem, and the majority of the rest being shot in Los Angeles. The goat's name was Noodles. <laughs> <laughs> the best. That's the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And the wig Ken Forey wears in the film was a never-ending source of frustration. So Zombie had a a character in the film refer to it as a wig so that audiences wouldn't ever question it. Which, that's a good idea. Yes. <laughs> Just call it out. Yes. Um, and the finale in the theater required Zombie to have three cameras rolling all at once throughout the building. And he would run from like one camera to the next, like trying to ensure that the shots that he wanted were achieved. And he acknowledges in the commentary that it drove everybody on the crew like really off the wall. It was because he was really the only one who knew exactly what he wanted and nobody else could achieve it. So, Oh, my God. Yeah. But, hey, there you go. Well, it worked. It got it done. So, apparently, the filming schedule was tight and a lot of scenes and characters had to be cut, which is why notable B actor and reoccurring Rob Zombie actor Sid Haig is seen very briefly in the film. Uh, Apparently, he had a much larger role. He plays one of the people that's, like, killing Margaret Morgan. Oh. Yeah, he's, he's like, in it for, like, a second. You see, like, his profile, and that's it. But I guess his character had, like, lines and all kinds of stuff, but it all had to be cut. Well, dang it. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, between the film wrapping and editing, Zombie embarked on a tour with his band, which he stated, quote, was a great idea on paper, but in execution, it's been insanity, unquote. Oh, my God. And the trailer debuted at Zombie's concert on May 11th, 2012 at the PNC Bank Arts Center. In an interview, Zombie said that the film would be his cinematically biggest film and described it as if Ken Russell directed The Shining. (laughs) Interesting. Yep. And the film opened at Toronto International Film Festival in September of 2012 and then to regular theaters in April 2013. This kind of threw me off because this film is so atmospheric. I cannot imagine watching it in the spring. Like, this is an autumn movie, in my opinion. Yes, 100%. 
Lords of Salem got mostly mixed to negative reviews at the time of its release, which is too bad because the majority of the critics at TIFF gave it glowing reviews. I personally really liked it the first time I saw it, so suck it. (laughs) Same! I did too! I was pleasantly surprised because everyone, like, shit on it when it came out, and I was like, you guys are bananas. This movie is incredible. Yeah, you know, I actually watched it right when it came out on I think I must have been right when it came out on DVD because I went to uh this like video rental store in Denver, Colorado when where I used to live mm-hmm. and the guys that worked there were so cool. I cannot remember the name of this place for the life of me. It's right next to the Esquire Theater if we have any Denver listeners. Um but I went in and I was talking to the guys that run the, the rental store about Suspiria and how much I really liked Suspiria. And they were saying how, and if I liked it, I should watch Lords of Salem. And it just came out on DVD and they had it there for me to rent. And I hadn't even, I think I had heard of it, but I hadn't even like thought about it really. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, I'll watch that. So I rented it and I was like, ah, like I couldn't believe it. I loved it. And then I had no, yeah. So I actually had no idea that nobody really liked it when I first saw it. I was like, yeah, this is great. So it kind of surprised me to hear uh, how, how bad it went when it came out. I know. Honestly, it's what you would expect too from Rob Zombie, I think. I think it's his best movie. Yeah. Um, but I think since its release, the film has grown on everyone, and it's arguably one of the first modern, quote-unquote, highbrow horror films of the new decade. And if it had come out, let's say, the same year Hereditary or The Witch did, I don't think it would have gotten as much flack as it received in 2013. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. I think it's also overlooked quite often by non-horror fans how much love Rob Zombie has for older horror films and how much of an influence they have on his art. And like, we'll talk more about that too, I guess, in a, a little bit. But Rob Zombie, I, I think I said this in our House of Thousand Corpses episode, but Rob Zombie just seems like the kind of person that I would love to be friends with. Yeah. Because he loves old horror so much. Like, he loves the classics. And I, as somebody who grew up on the classics, I appreciate that so much. Like, that is something that I love. Like, just the fact that his his band's name was White Zombie is, like, amazing to me. Yes. Okay, so according to Daniel Kurland, quote, Rob Zombie's filmmaking style may come across as a little crude to some, but he's a director who undeniably pulls inspiration from classical places and has a lot of respect for the traditional projects that helped the genre get started in the first place, unquote. And uh, yeah, I think that's why this film feels so much like a 70s sort of witchy horror film like Suspiria. Yes. Oh, I love it. It's so good. All right, so with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Heidi Hawthorne is a recovering addict and DJ living in Salem, Massachusetts. There, at the station with her co-workers, Whitey and Munster, she receives a mysterious record in a wooden box with an album inside by a band called The Lords. Curious, she takes it home and listens to it with Whitey. She's entranced immediately at the sound of the strange music and has visions of women worshipping Satan and giving birth to a cursed baby. 
While recording the show the next day, she interviews a man named Francis Matthias, the author of a book about the Salem witch trials. After the enlightening interview, the station plays the mysterious record that was sent to Heidi, and it entrances all of the women in Salem listening to the radio program. Matthias is particularly bothered by the music and begins to do some of his own research on where the record could have come from. When Heidi gets home that night, she's invited into her landlady Lacey's apartment to join her and her sisters, Megan and Sunny. Megan reveals to Heidi that she is a palm reader and begins to read Heidi's palm and tells her that she's fated to succumb to her dark sexual desires, or, in her words, the only reason you exist. Disturbed, Heidi leaves, only to discover that inside the vacant apartment number five down the hall contains demonic shapes along with an apparition of a nude witch that pleads her to bleed us a son. Heidi awakens from what she assumes is a nightmare. Bothered by her dream, she stumbles upon a church while walking her dog and goes inside, where she has a vision of being sexually assaulted by a maniacal priest, and upon fleeing, comes face to face with something ghostly, telling her that it's been waiting for her. Matthias continues to research the record and discovers that the music was part of a historical book. He asks his wife to play the notes that he came across, and sure enough, it is the same music on the record. He tracks down the author of the book, who explains to him that the women of Salem are cursed by a coven of witches that were executed by Reverend Hawthorne, and named Hawthorne's descendants the vessel by which the devil's child would inherit the earth. Upon further research, he discovers that Heidi is a direct descendant of the Reverend. Heidi continues to have strange visions after hearing the record played again. She decides to stay with Whitey, but continues to have demonic, disturbing visions before waking up in her home. Heidi falls into the hands of addiction as she begins to unravel. Lacey, Sunny, and Megan bring Heidi to apartment number five while she is high on drugs, and Heidi finds a demon there with strange tentacle arms that wrap around her, but she makes her way back to her apartment again. Matthias decides to tell Heidi the truth about her lineage and what it has to do with this strange music, but before he can get to her, he is intercepted by Lacey, Sunny, and Megan and promptly killed. Heidi hears all of this happen, but she's powerless. The Lords of Salem concert takes place, and Lacey, Sunny, and Megan, along with the ghosts of the along with the ghosts of the coven, join Heidi for the ritual, where Heidi gives birth to a strange and grotesque creature resembling a crawfish under... The kitten is meowing outside of my door. She can come in. Okay. (laughs) Am I ever going to get through this plot summary? She misses her mommy. The Lords of Salem concert takes place, and Lacey, Sunny, and Megan, along with the ghosts of the coven, join Heidi for the ritual, where Heidi gives birth to a strange and grotesque creature resembling a crawfish after the audience members, all of the cursed women, strip naked and die. The next day, Heidi's radio station reports of the mass suicide, as well as Heidi's disappearance. Oh, thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes. There are lots of women with names in this and they talk a lot about stuff that's not men. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes. 
Did a woman write, direct, producer, edit the film? No. Was the final girl a main character a person of color? No. And were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Well, there's definitely some queer coding in the film, which I, I, we won't get into too much, but we'll talk a little bit about it. I'll, at least I'll mention the article that actually talks more about it that you should all read. But there aren't any openly queer characters. So let's start off with Nathaniel Hawthorne and a little history of Salem. And uh, how does this relate to Heidi and the Lords of Salem? Okay, so as we know, when we talk about horror, names are very important and they hold a lot of meaning, especially when you're talking about the supernatural or demonic. In this case, we are talking about actual history, which is pretty cool. Um, I was really young when I read Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, The Scarlet Letter, and it it really resonated with me. I was amazed at how this man from centuries ago was able to beautifully capture what it's like to be a scorned woman, and he made you feel sympathy for her. So I think it's excellent to see that kind of come to life in this film, too. And um, the history of the name Hawthorne is pretty fascinating also. So according to Rebecca Beatrice Brooks for the history of Massachusetts.org, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was born and raised in Salem, is best known for his novels, The Scarlet Letter and The House of Seven Gables. Nathaniel Hawthorne's family had deep roots in Salem. As a result, the town and Nathaniel's Salem ancestors themselves greatly influenced his writing. Born in Salem on July 4th, 1804, Nathaniel Hawthorne was the great-grandson of the Salem Witch Trials judge, John Hawthorne. Hawthorne was haunted by his connection to his ancestor, and it is speculated that he may have eventually added the W to his name to distance himself from his great-great-grandfather. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Hawthorne published two stories under the name, uh, it looks like Hathorne, in 1830, but started spelling his name with a W after this date. Nathaniel Hawthorne is not only related to John Hawthorne, but also to a number of the accused witches from the Salem Witch Trials. Oh my goodness. Yes. Mary and Philip English, John Proctor, (gasps) and Sarah Wilson, as well as one of the accusers, Sarah Phelps. Oh my God. They're all related. Yeah, I know. It's kind of wild. Um, So there's this really fantastic duality to the name because, I mean, there's a lot of duality in the film. Heidi is a woman with, you know, this past of addiction, but she becomes sober and finds this kind of redemption through group therapy and she's got a successful career and she's seemingly really put together and then her world just starts crumbling. Like her past just comes back to get her. And... As that happens, you start to see the polarity in everything in her life, like the pastor that she meets, for example. And Nathaniel Hawthorne was part of the accusations, but he could very well have witch blood himself, even though we know a lot of the accused were more than likely innocent women. Right. But since Heidi is a descendant of this, she dabbles in both the righteous, and the wicked, but we don't really know what side is worse in this. Mm. So it's kind of interesting. 
this whole name thing. That's a great speculation. I, you know, when they said her name was Hawthorne, I was like, Hawthorne, Hawthorne, Hawthorne. Why does that also sound familiar? Obviously, you know, John Hawthorne. Yeah. But it's like, why is that also? I for do- totally did not know that Nathaniel Hawthorne was also related to John Hawthorne. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Ooh, American history. Oh. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about, like, women and bodily autonomy. And then, like, let's talk about how there's just a bunch of older women in this movie, too. So I do want to mention this quote by Justin Lockwood, because I think that this is pretty perfect. Quote, Heidi's eyes in the finale of The Lords of Salem appear white and sightless, and she is posed like a religious statue. This is what women in these cautionary tales are reduced to. Props to be controlled and exploited as others see fit, denied their agency and identity, unquote. This is sort of interesting to me because I think that uh, women are very much often put on pedestals as I mean, we talked about this, I think, in our episode about the witch and probably many others that I can't even remember. But women are like the virgin whore is basically what women are always like looked at as or like the virgin mother. Right. Like Mm -hmm. Mary is like top tier. Like this is what a woman should be like. She should be virginal, but she should also be the wife and mother. And you literally cannot be both (laughs) unless you are Mary, I guess. But I think it's interesting that um, Heidi is sort of reduced to this. Like, yes, like she is like glowing at the end and she's looked upon as like this wonderful being but she is yeah like she's a prop yes totally agree um i think another interesting part to this too is you know i think that anyone who knows about the salem witch trials knows that the women who may have been considered like doulas or cunning folk were often accused of witchcraft because of their ability to heal others or, Mm -hmm. you know, for having what others believe to be magical powers when really they were just using traditions that had been handing, like handed down to them from their mothers and grandmothers and aunts, etc. You know, what's so interesting is that prayer and witchcraft are so similar. Yeah. I mean, even even Catholicism with like burning the incense and the chanting and stuff and in the Latin, yeah, you know, is very. I mean, you think about it, like Latin is used a lot in like faux like witch spells and stuff. I yes, guess. but yeah, um, it's interesting how similar the rituals are, but you know, one is more dangerous than the other. Mm-hmm. So I also really want to talk about how awesome it is that Rob Zombie casts older women in prime roles in most of his films. I mean, Sherry Moon was 43 when she did this movie. I think you actually see the date of her character Heidi's birthday, and I think it was 1974. So her character's a little bit younger, but not by much. She's 39. So, yeah, so she is playing a woman on the cusp of turning 40, and she herself was 43 when she did this film. I mean, that's amazing. That and she's amazing. the main she's the main character. It's awesome. Yes. And not to mention the three sisters 
And then the Lords, like according to Jacob Trussell, quote, credit should be given where it's due for having a cast made up relatively of women over the age of 50, not playing grandmothers or wives, but rather strong, empowered and frightening people. Zombie allows these older women to be sexy in a way that studios rarely ever do, unquote. Yes. And Zombie himself commented on this in an interview with Andrew Parker for the Toronto Film Festival. He said, quote, I guess the script just seemed offensive to so many people. And a lot of roles were for older actresses in their 60s, which would seem like one of the most underused types of actors. And I thought that all of these women must be sick of playing the mother who hides in the background, unquote. Oh my gosh, yes. The rejections from several actors didn't phase him, however, and he said, quote, I'm actually glad that so many people passed because we ended up with the people that totally got it. Like, they got what he was trying to do, and they probably loved what he was doing anyway. Oh my god, that's awesome. Like, I'm sure these women were like, oh, yes, like, I I get to be naked. Like, this is great. (laughs) Yes. You You can totally tell on camera, too, that they were, like, super into this. They're having a blast. It's mm. so fun. Um, So one person even thanked him profusely, and that was Dee Wallace. She said... Yeah, she said, if I have to play one more fucking mommy, I'm going to lose my mind. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Incredible. Oh, D. Wallace. So Sherry Moon Zombie is quoted as saying... I loved working with all of the ladies in the film. It was very, it was a very female-driven cast, which is something you don't see very often in films these days. The witches from 1692 were so great to work with, and they were so free and liberating. Meg Foster was wonderful to work with. Of course, the modern-day witches in the movie, played by Dee Wallace, Judy Geeson, and Patricia Quinn, were just amazing were just amazing to work with as well. I loved how they weren't overtly looking like witches and were like normal women for their age. I have known Dee before, but working with Judy and Pat were a great ex- was a great experience for me, but at the same time, very intimidating at first. They were also warm and fun to work with, unquote. Yeah, so I think that this being a film about women and women's bodily autonomy and like, what women are reduced to, like having those themes of being reduced to, you know, this virginal mother type thing. Mm-hmm. It it happens sort of at the end for Heidi, who's, I guess, the youngest out of all of them. And she's, you know, pushing 40. Yeah. And all of these older women are sort of almost like they're the ones who are like, power. they're the powerful ones. Like they are seeing this happen, but it's like, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's like they almost they've seen they've like been through what they've had to have gone through, maybe the damage that they've gone through as younger Mm -hmm. women. And then as older women, they've sort of overcome it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, Like you can kind of see like they've sort of grown and they're over that stage, I guess. And they're they're ready to kill some dudes (laughs) because they do. (laughs) We could just kill a man. Well, and I think that it's interesting that Patricia Quinn's character, I think it's her, that says 
are you going to stick your cock into her brains and fuck her brains or something? Yes. And it's not supposed to be like a sexual thing. She's saying like, are you going to like fill her mind with, with your manly thoughts like you know or like what you perceive to be bad or something this is how I'm like trying to look at this film because yes they're the bad guys but then it's like I don't know and then you see this guy trying to like warn her and it's like is he also like he obviously thinks he's the good guy and I think the audience is supposed to think that too but it's like is this bad like we don't you know what I mean like to us, maybe as outsiders, but maybe to the coven, it's it's not. You know, it's... I mean, and then you think about Heidi. She is this woman who's, like, downtrodden. And she's kind of plays... We're going to get in, into this more later. But she sort of, like, has is lost and, like, has nowhere to go. And then she's made a goddess. Yeah. And this wouldn't have happened to her if that guy had told her what was going on maybe i don't know yeah it's well like you said it's very like mary-esque you know like it's a woman who doesn't really get to choose what happens to her based on like her lineage yes that is key isn't it because mary doesn't get to choose to be the, the mother of God. Yeah. Know? I mean, what the heck? Yeah. So this story, this whole story is basically just like a dark reflection of the, um, what do I want to say? What's the word for it? Nativity. There we go. Yeah. Right. And instead of a bunch of men sort of guiding the story, it's a bunch of women guiding the story and then mm-hmm. another woman you know, who is the Mary figure, which is Heidi. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's very female-driven, very older female-driven, and I love it. Yes! Okay, let's get into our next topic. So, what do the lords represent? So, okay, mm. I want to share with y'all some info, and Abby, I want to discuss it with you. I got this exclusive research from a chapter of a book that's yet to be released, It's an anthology book, and it's called New Queer Horror, Film and Television. And the chapter that I will be quoting from is called Sisters United, Feminist Nostalgia, Queer Spectatorship, and the Radical Witch Politics of Rob Zombie's The Lords of Salem. Wow. Yes. (laughs) And it is by Ben Raphael Scheer. I I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, Scheer and their publisher were kind enough to let me read this chapter before the book's release, which, I mean, this book looks and sounds amazing, and I cannot wait to buy it uh, when it comes out. Like, I'm so excited. Ben, the author, told me uh, that it's going to be published in October, but the only info that I can find on it is that it's coming out in January of 2021. So I am honestly not sure. Ben, let me know if, I, if I'm getting this wrong. Uh, but everything online is saying it's coming out in January. Uh, I have a link to the book in the show notes for anyone who would like to pre-order it. It looks awesome. Um, okay, so I'm going to quote Ben Schur, And he says, quote, In the film's first moments, a witch hunter named John Hawthorne writes in his journal that a coven of heretical witches, 
in Salem must be destroyed. Zombie cross cuts to footage of mostly elderly, dirty, impoverished looking witches holding their ritual around a fire. They proudly spout scandalous dialogue, such as, We spit upon the book of lies, describing the Bible, and happily procreate proclaim their desire to desecrate these false bodies by ripping off their clothes, erotically embracing each other, and dancing. Watching this scene gave me an immediate jolt of excitement and the joyful feeling of seeing something on screen that I had not before. Old women breaking all rules of conventional attractiveness, aggressively cursing normative values and taking lustful pride in their bodies, their sexuality, and their queerness. Maybe zombie intended for the bold transgression of these women, their otherness, to frighten and disturb the audience? I find it impossible to have such a reaction to the film. Perhaps it is because the actresses themselves seem so connected with their characters and like they are having a lot of fun unquote. And that's just what we were talking about. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. And uh, Cher goes on to say, and personally, this is my favorite part of his article, quote, the Lords of Salem immediately establishes its witches as the other. They appear to be poor and dirty, wearing rags and dancing sexually with each other in a space devoid, devoid of men. It could be argued that the women's off-stated allegiance to the devil renders them patriarchal, which would contribute to the film's incoherence. However, when Zombie visualizes the devil, it appears without gender resembling a large, monstrous baby with, without genitalia. Although the women refer to the devil as quote-unquote he, they also repeatedly ascribe masculine pronouns to women, most prominently by referring to themselves as lords, unquote. Yes. And isn't that just the best thing ever? Yes. Like, when I was actually sitting watching the film this time, I did think, this is so interesting that he chose to call this the Lords of Salem and not, like, the Ladies of Salem. And I guess the Ladies of Salem isn't as spooky sounding, but I was like, this is really kind of a bold move to call it the Lord, like, to call them the Lords. Yeah, 100%. I loved it, though. I was like, no, mm, uh. it's great. It is glorious yes. <laughs> that these women have have given themselves like this masculine pronoun. Like that is so, I don't know, that's pretty forward thinking. Yeah. Sure also mentions the sisters, which kind of goes with our last topic as well, and says, quote, the Lord's radical feminist undertones are also rooted in the film's references to specific horror films and stars. In casting Judy Geeson... Patricia Quinn and Dee Wallace and Meg Foster as the film's main witches, Zombie also draws upon savvy audience members' knowledge of feminist protagonists that the actresses have played in the past. The actresses' cinematic histories and audiences' affection for them add to their characters' feminist and heroic qualities, unquote. And before we move on, I'd like to share one last quote from Sure. Quote, their bodies are aged, but they proudly dance naked. 
They appear to be unmarried and separated from men, but they revel in their sexuality. They appear to be without the possessions accompanying normative wealth, and yet they seem to be very pleased by the physical, economic, moral, and spiritual independence allowed by their powerful coven. Although the witches and lords worship Satan, a notion that Mary Daly and other feminist scholars have claimed as a historical fallacy perpetrated by men, Zombie makes it clear that on Earth, their worship of this largely invisible, ambiguously gendered force has led to a powerful matriarchal society that threatens men in positions of power, unquote. Wow. Yep. I mean, that is pitch perfect right there. Thank you so much, Ben, for letting me read your amazing article. And y'all have to check out this book, New Queer Horror. Again, the link to it is in the show notes. Please buy it. It sounds amazing. Yes, I can't wait to read that. That is incredible. I'm so, so, so glad that we had access to that for this episode. Oh my gosh. Yes, that was very kind of him. Thank you so much. Oh, the best, you guys. Exciting things are happening in literature. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, okay. So can, to continue on with this topic, um, in an article for Medium, author Alexandra Landers writes, quote, the witches and lords aren't hocus-pocus, long-nosed, green, and warty witches. They are very real manifestations of a group of women based in history those victimized by the Salem witch trials. Of course, the supernatural elements are those of a horror story, probably not historical fact, and so trans traversing this ground can be surprisingly difficult. From a feminist perspective, creating a coven of satanic witches without demonizing them for their sex is going to be really, really difficult. For fairly weighted and the most interesting representation, it's incredibly important that the witches the witches be real, authentic women, not cartoons or approximations. Why? Because witchcraft and the burning of witches at Salem was, in its least magical interpretation, a crime against women. Unquote. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I really, really loved that quote. I thought that was really yes, great. Totally. She goes on to say that... The witches seeking vengeance and lords are not merely monsters, but a pack of wronged women. Their characterization and their union is symbolic of the strength the bonds between women can create. In this coven, Zombie creates a group of women who are frightening, threatening, and scary. That gives them real power. They are also given reason, logic, and vindication. They have every reason to see the men around them crumble and no problem using their women to do it. This, of course, makes the lords definitively evil, their willingness to sacrifice other women to achieve their ends. But they only participate in the same evil the patriarchy had invented before them because, ultimately, that is how the women of Salem were always viewed, witches and non-witches alike, as property of the men they were born to. Unquote. Mm, wow. Yeah. There you go. So it kind of works again, like going back to these, this, that last topic too. Like it works that they are older. It really does. And normally I would not like condone the whole like an eye for an eye type thing, but like, no, it's, it's kind of like that quote that 
I, I don't know who said it. It's like a, it's like an internet quote at this point, but it's like, you should be happy that, um, women only want equality and not revenge. <laughs> right. This movie is kind of an example of like why you should be happy about that. <laughs> So. <laughs> right. It's a bunch of older women who are tired of the shit that they've gone through and mm-hmm. are <laughs> ready to take o- take Salem back, basically. Yes. Because uh. I think it's also interesting that the people who are in charge of the history are men. Yeah. Right? There's Francis, and then there's that other guy whose book that he, re- who re- he read. And then, of course, there's John Hawthorne, who wrote in his journal about what happened. Mm-hmm. So there's all these men who are controlling the history of these women, like their their history. Yes. And they're and, taking it back. You know, and then you have, like, that guy who was in the metal band that, like, comes in for the interview and, like, talks about the goat and stuff like that and we worship the goat and it's like he is so intense he is very intense but i think he kind of like misses the mark a little bit Mm -hmm. so in a way they're kind of like making fun of all these guys who have like tried to take over like satanism and witchcraft and it's really like i'm not saying that like guys can't be a part of it that's totally fine but it is very absolutely met male witches yes but i see where you're going with this they're trying to they're they're making fun of maybe the men who sort of are trying to claim it yes i guess as their own and nobody else's yeah yeah so that actually goes really well with the next topic that i kind of wanted to like lightly brush over um i want to at least like talk about the men in this Mm -hmm. film and what they represent like In regards to, you know, the lords and, like, the women and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. obviously, this film is about females. It's, like, the divine and dark parts of us and how they pertain to our pasts and destiny. But the men provide this really interesting dichotomy to all of this. Like, you have Heidi's friends and co-workers who care about her. Uh, Francis Matthias, who introduces Heidi to the history of her ancestors, and he basically ignites the spark to her downfall, kind of. And then you have the priest who, in her vision, sexually assaults her. Mm-hmm. So the men are kind of used as a means to an end in this film. And the descendants of the witches make that very clear. Like... Lacey Uh and her sisters make that super clear, obviously, because they murder Matthias. (laughs) Right. And I, I would argue, okay, so her coworkers do like her. They do. They're her friends. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know if I would say that they 100% really care about her. I don't think so. I think Whitey sees her as, like, a very sexual object. Oh, and I'm going to talk about that in the next topic, Um, (laughs) because I agree. And Munster, he sort of is kind of, he doesn't, he's her friend, but he's more her coworker. He doesn't hang out with her. Yeah. They drink when they're doing their show, but I think he's sort of, I think they sort of want her to be a certain type of character 
because they all sort of have their characters, I guess, as their radio personalities, but we don't really get to see so much of of uh, Munster outside of the radio personality. Right. But I feel like Whitey and Munster are themselves when they do the show, and Heidi puts on a cool girl persona. Yeah. And when that cool girl persona starts to fade because she's not feeling well, they kind of give her shit. Yeah. And they automatically think that she's using again, which at that point, she's not. Right. And she does because she is a wreck and that's what happens, you know, it happens. Um, But they sort of just kind of feel like, oh, she's using again, like she's useless because she's not like, <laughs> oh, you're such a perv, which is what she does. That's her like her thing, right, for the show. That's like mm-hmm. her, her shtick. Yeah. And when that shtick fails, like they're kind of like, oh, like look who decides to show up. Like, you know, and it's just like, Obviously, something's wrong with her. Like, help her out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. And I think you're right. I think Whitey sort of sees her as a sexual object. He It doesn't take much to shoo him away. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, okay, it, I guess it's not that big of a deal to you then. Yeah, the like, landlady is like, no, you should go. You should go. We'll take care of her. He's like, oh, okay. And she's like, yeah, please go. Please go. And he's not taking the hint that maybe she needs help. Yeah. Uh Okay, let's talk about the power of music. So according to otherworldlyoracle.com, the magical history of music. So the modern society may not treat music as a magical thing now, but once music was considered to be one of the highest forms of magic. When someone sang or played an instrument, it was often to honor the gods or tell a mythical story. In medieval Ireland and England, a bard was a poet who weaved magical tales with his music. Often a bard played an instrument like a harp while singing tales of older times. The bards and the musicians carried on the knowledge of their people. If we look back to ancient times, drums and other instruments were used to celebrate holy days, invoke trance-like states, that happens in the film, (laughs) or announce the start of a battle. The people in ancient times who sang, danced, and made music were once thought of as spiritually gifted individuals. Music's history history is a magical one. We have only to look back in the pages of time, unquote. Ooh, as soon as you started talking about the bard, all I could think of was the witcher. All I can think about is D&D, so. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> so good. Ugh. So Jay Simpson writes, The witches were burned in 1693 for making unholy music in the woods surrounding Salem. And the men feared the music would corrupt Salem's women, possess them, and drive them to madness. You can see the original backlash against rock and roll, which was called the devil's music, echoed historically, but rock and roll has effectively neutralized, or it has been effectively neutralized. It is the safest, blandest, most understood commodity in the universe. (laughs) The wolf has had its fangs yanked, but along comes Mr. Zombie and his slasher fix. I love that quote. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I think the other music that's used in this film, particularly the use of Venus and Furs by the Velvet Underground and All Tomorrow's Parties, which is also by them, but sung by Nico, are very important as well. 
The song Venus in Furs is based on the novel of the same name, which is about a female dominatrix, basically. And it's about her dominating this guy. And uh, the song is about that all as well. Like, a man submits himself to a dominant woman who he loves. And this song plays in the film when Whitey is over visiting Heidi at her apartment. I think he kind of sort of puts it on as a joke, yeah. but I think he's also kind of serious. Yeah, he's like, mm, hey, I wouldn't be sad if, you know. Right, he's no. like, he's like, <laughs> hey, he goes, oh, is this too obvious? Oh, and she's like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, oh, poor Heidi. But yeah, I think he's kind of serious, and it kind of goes along with the whole theme of the movie, with women literally coming out on top, so to speak, and mm-hmm. like... They are the dominant ones in this story. And I think even more telling is All Tomorrow's Parties, uh, which is also a Lou Reed Velvet Underground song. And uh, Nico is a queer icon, which is also relevant. But the song itself is based on Andy Warhol's Factory, which is basically, if you you don't know what that is, it's basically the people he hung out with, like his posse. Mm-hmm. And it was about, particularly about this one woman in Andy Warhol's factory. And in a note by David Frick, Louis, Lou Reed is supposedly said that the song is a very apt description of certain people at the factory at the time. I watched Andy. I watched Andy watching everybody. I would hear people say the most astonishing things, the craziest things, the funniest things, the saddest things, unquote. So that's what it's sort of based on is them. And um, the song mentions Thursday's child, uh, which in the nursery rhyme that predicts a child's fortune, depending on what day of the week they were born, uh, the nursery rhyme says that Thursday's child has far to go. And this could mean that the child is lost or still has a lot to figure out. And I mean, this could totally relate to Heidi's character. Yeah. And she is lost. And so she is like, I guess, an easy target for this coven. And I think it's also telling that it's a costume in the song that a girl is looking for. And so like she's looking to change her identity or hide herself in her hair and her clothes. And I mean, look, Heidi is a very awesome, unique looking woman, right? Mm -hmm. And like one might think that, you know, she's wearing these like fun clothes and tattoos and hair and dreadlocks, right? Uh, Because she's expressing herself. But if you kind of look at the song, like is she maybe very like fun and unique because she's wearing a costume? Like she's trying to hide something? Oh, yeah. So she doesn't even like go by her real name as well. Like nobody knows that her last name is Hawthorne. Like her last name, everyone thinks is LaRock. Mm-hmm. She has a job where nobody sees her face. Like she is a radio DJ. And I think that it's interesting that she also sleeps naked when we first meet her. And when I first saw this, I was like, okay, like Rob Zombie is showing off his hot wife. Like I get it, <laughs> you know? But I'm wondering if this is really the only time Heidi kind of feels free and doesn't feel like she has to wear all of this, like, stuff, like, in order to, like, show off or, like, not to show off, really, but to hide. And, like, in the dark, naked in her apartment with no one around her except her dog, like, this is, like, her time to, like, just chill. And she doesn't have to be anybody but herself. And 
I think that it's also interesting that the trip to the moon imagery over her bed is there because this confirms this to me because it means that like when she is in her room, when she's in her bed, she is far away from everyone else. She has taken a trip to the moon. Going back to the song, I think the lyrics also the lyrics also state, uh, quote, for Thursday's child is Sunday's clown for whom none will go mourning, unquote. And Sunday is the Sabbath day. And Heidi is the new mother of the Antichrist. Ooh, yeah. Yes. So Thursday's child, Heidi, is Sunday's clown. Not to say that Heidi is a clown, but I, you know, but I think if we look at this metaphorically, like she's like the opposite, right, of of the Sabbath day. Like she's the opposite of this very pure spiritual day you know yeah and of course there's also a bunch of cinderella connotations in the lyrics too um like when midnight comes around and whatnot so yeah so fairy tales too which is awesome which we won't get into because this episode's already so long but (laughs) i just thought that was like there's a good reason like zombie chose to use venus and furs in all tomorrow's parties in this movie i think it's awesome oh absolutely Oh my god. <laughs> okay. So let's get into our final thought. Female trauma in Lords of Salem. Oof. So according to Scout Tafoya, quote, I told a yoga teacher of mine I was writing about the way female trauma is framed in Rob Zombie's movies and her face dropped. She told me she'd been to one of his concerts and felt borderline unsafe. The imagery and lyrics seemed misogynist and the fans moshing along to what she saw as a threatening message made her sick. I said that seeing the wrong few of his movies might not initially cure her of her idea that zombies movies are not a safe space for (laughs) women. Um, But women, after all, are murdered, assaulted, beaten, screamed at, made the eye wall of a storm of pain. Zombies art undeniably takes female suffering as its subject, but its sensitivity and pointed truth of his images doesn't emerge unless you gird yourself against the shock and ruin. The coarseness of his vision of violence. Once you've immersed yourself in his worldview, it becomes a place almost calming in its cankerous objectness, unquote. Wow. Tafoya goes on to say, quote, Sherry Moo Zombie plays Heidi, a DJ with a whole life of partying and substance abuse written in her dreadlocks, chosen by a coven of local witches to be the vessel of their new messiah. The witches see someone with few friends, no confidence, no family, and a host of exploitable weaknesses. She goes to Neurotics Anonymous meetings, drinks heavily on and off the job, and feels professional and social pressure from her co-workers to keep her easygoing party girl image alive. The witches in her apartment building barely need to lift a finger to twist Heidi's vices against her. Soon after, they set their sights on her. She stops reaching out to friends, stops attending meetings, starts seeing visions that could be satanic or simply the product of insomnia and dependency, unquote. And um, to conclude, uh... Tafoya says, Heidi vanishes in Lords of Salem, subsumed by darkness and her own doubts that she deserves a second chance. There isn't always a happy ending in tales of illness and her own darkness. It's not a hopeful prognosis, but a realistic, gratifying one. Sometimes not being understood is as scary an idea as being killed, 
unquote. And I think that also connects with all tomorrow's parties as well. Yeah, absolutely. This film is like a scathing look at how that trauma affects you. We talk, you know, this podcast has like some core values that we always talk about. (laughs) I feel like like generational trauma is one that comes up like all the time because it's such a central theme in horror films because you're afraid of repeating the past, obviously, but you're also afraid to kind of face your own demons because it's fucking scary to do that. Yeah, she's she's hiding from herself, but she's also hiding from her past. Like she, unlike Nathaniel Hawthorne, she's not recognizing her dark past as a you know of descendant of a witch hunter yeah like i want to bring up too when she is sitting there having her palm read by megan and she she kind of is like "Mm, no i don't like this she's kind of shutting down instead of maybe like opening up and talking to people about what scares her and I think that maybe if she felt like she was in a safe space or she really had supportive people in her life, it could have possibly saved her. And I think that that is like a huge, huge frightening factor in this movie. It's like being isolated and, you know, being alone within yourself. Right. It's just, it's very heavy. Especially if you are a woman who has experienced some of the things that maybe Heidi has, or, you know, you have grown up feeling like you're kind of an outsider and that kind of thing. Oh, man. This film just, like, hits the nail on the head. It does. And you wouldn't, I don't think anyone really would think that we could go that deep with a Rob Zombie movie. I know. But that's why it's so brilliant. Yes. It really is. This is why this is my favorite one that he's done. Oh, man. It's so good. All right. Well, let's let's talk about the good things that have been happening. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have any? Well, I mean, I don't really know. I made the mistake of, like, getting back on the internet after, like, taking a break for a couple of days and learning about the terrible things going on in the ICE detention centers in Georgia. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I'm going to have anything good to talk about on the podcast. (laughs) I guess, like... I guess the good thing, my sugar cube this week, it will be that it hasn't happened yet, but I guess it's something that I'm looking forward to. This weekend, um, my family and I are going apple picking and we're going to play cornhole and we're going to kind of chillax because the only people that um, we're seeing right now is my parents and my sisters. So this is like a little family get together that we're gonna do this weekend. Oh, um, that's so. Since we're the, 
yeah, since we're the only ones that visit each other. Yeah. So yeah, we're making like a fun, we're making like a fun thing out of it. Oh my gosh. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll. Oh, I guess a good thing that did happen. I'll, I'll say this. So my sugar cube is that yesterday my aunt and her husband, my uncle, came to my house. They drove out to see me and they watched my son while I cleaned my bathroom, cleaned my kitchen, did some laundry, and mopped my floors. Oh. I got so much done. It was awesome. And they made me pancakes. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so sweet. Yes, it was very sweet, and it was much needed. I I mean, Abby, you know, like, I've been burnt out this week. It was, like, such a hot mess for me. And oh, man. I <laughs> needed somebody to just watch my son for me because I don't live near my family so and I don't have any friends here yet because COVID hit like right when we moved into our house yeah like what the even Um, heck yeah so like we don't really have a support system here in Buffalo so it was nice to have my aunt and my uncle come out and watch my son so that I could I could just clean just clean a little bit (laughs) you know what sometimes that's really good self-care cleaning your space No, a clean house is a clean heart. Yes. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) So how about you? I guess mine would be that, hmm, well, my boyfriend is in college, so he started classes. So while he is in class, um, I go and, like, hang out with his son and, like, I'll pick him up from school and stuff like that. And he and I have been going hiking while we wait, like, for my boyfriend to get home. So I'll pick him up from school. We'll hop in the car, like, change him into his little hiking boots, which are, like, the cutest things in the entire world. They're these little tiny, itty-bitty Merrill boots that we got him. And, um, yeah, we've been going for, like, hour-long walks together through the woods. And Oh, that's so nice. What a great bonding thing for you two. It really is. And like we just we talk about everything. And it, it's <laughs> it's awesome. It's so cute and it's just the best. It's just like a good way to decompress after very long days. So Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's good times. Oh, well thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Uh, just an update, obviously, our pa- for our patrons. We are not sending out any gifts right now because of COVID-19. So please, like new patrons, hang tight. We'll make sure we send your gifts soon. However, you can also help support the show by going to our merch shop and buying some merch. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. You can head on over to goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you to our shop. Oh, and please consider donating what you can to the Black Lives matter movement as well as the trans lifeline links as always are in the notes of this episode yeah we know times are tough right now so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media facebook at good morning nancy twitter at good morning nan and instagram at good morning nancy podcast don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show we love you all to death have a good morning bye